This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 73. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 73 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Distro Kid. We have another great show for you today. Today we have on Mr. John Schimpf from 25th Street Studios. John is the manager over there, the studio manager, but he's also an accomplished uh, live mixer, studio mixer, producer, engineer, you know, man of many skills and talents. And he just so happens to run one of uh, the coolest studios in the Bay Area by far. So John Schimpf is coming up here shortly. Hey, and I really appreciate it, uh, everybody. I Last show I was talking about uh, Tom Size, who is dealing with a little bit of a, uh, a cancer situation, and he's got a, um, well, actually, somebody set up on his behalf a uh, GoFundMe page at gofundme.com slash help Tom Size. And I asked uh, many of you to contribute to that. And I'm seeing on their page, I'm seeing not only the contributions pick up, but I'm also noticing a lot of names that I recognize. And I just want to say, if you have contributed, I, uh, I just want to thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you spreading the word. Once again, I don't know Tom very well. We've emailed and that's about it. We've never met in person. But as I um, had said on my personal Facebook page, one of our brothers needs our help. So, uh, you know. I think it's uh, I think it's important that we look at this uh, from a community perspective and really uh, come to Tom's aid with financially what you're able to contribute. So that being said, um, if you haven't contributed and you want to, once again, it's www.gofundme.com slash help Tom size. You can read up on Tom's past and his contributions to our music world, our recording world in general. So there it is, Tom size. Uh, let's see what else, um, in the spirit of, um, the freelancer and, uh, working class and just, you know, uh, cobbling it all together as many of us do. I'm super psyched to, um, tell you that I'm going back part-time over to, uh, KFOG to do some, uh, live from, uh, the Levi play space there, the Levi, Levi lounge, I should say. Uh, the KFOG gig is a gig I had. A couple of years ago, where for about a little over a year, I uh, spent time at this local radio station in San Francisco and recorded live acts that came in. Uh, there was a person who ran sound in a room, and then I was in another room on an old rickety Pro Tools rig. It was kind of goofy, you know. Um, it was actually an old uh, Pro Tools 7 rig, and you would control it over a uh, an iMac. Uh, remotely. It was weird, but we made it work and um, recorded a lot of really cool people, got a lot of great experiences with like uh, Delta Spirit, Florence and the Machine, uh, the Bodines, Robert Cray. Uh, it was a blast. It was really fun. But eventually, you know, different people were hired and, you know, as businesses do, things change. And uh, I, at some point, found myself out of the loop and not in, you know, basically they didn't need my, did not need my services anymore. So some time has passed and some things have changed. Uh, I went and had a, a, a great meeting with an old friend of mine uh, who was there when I was there in the first place, and he asked me back, and I'm super psyched about that. So, yeah, I'm sure I'll be sharing some stories in the future. But, yeah, so uh, if you've never heard KFOG, uh, you can – if you don't live in the Bay Area, of course, you can tune in online. Uh, it's a station that's been around for a long time. It's gone through some changes over the years and 
some friends of mine and, and uh, friends of many of you who listen uh, recently lost their jobs, uh, some DJs, which was very unfortunate. Um, so in the midst of the change, I guess, I guess they have room for me now, which is, uh, that's the bright side of it. Uh, so yeah, I'll be telling you all about that as time goes along. Uh, what else? What else? I want to make sure and uh, talk to you. Uh, I know I've been uh, talking about Distro- DistroKid, which is one of our new sponsors here on the show. If you don't know about DistroKid, let me just be brief with you and tell you about it. If uh, they're, they're a digital aggregator in the spirit of uh, TuneCore and CD Baby. But here's some of the highlights. What they do, their, their whole job is to get music up on iTunes and Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, you know, the whole, the whole gamut of uh, all that, plus all the streaming services. You get to keep 100% of your royalties and you get paid monthly. And they help you get in stores about 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor at a fraction of the price. Because essentially, uh, the only thing you pay is $19.90 a year. And that allows you to upload unlimited albums and songs for the full year. So their competitors charge like two times that just to upload one album. And that starts to add up and becomes prohibitive for those who, uh, like myself and the band that I'm still in, the Sextants, um, we still upload music and sell it and people stream it and we do all that. But we don't tour. We never play together, never play live. We all live in different different parts of California. So it makes it kind of a kind of a hassle to get together. So, but we do it for, for our own enjoyment and our old fans who, who like to listen to our music. So it's, that's kind of been one of the, the bottlenecks in all of this is just like justifying the cost of our uploads. So we're actually in the process of uh, moving everything from all the other services. Cause we have music placed with a bunch of different services, all of which I've mentioned, TuneCore, CD Baby. Um, there's a couple other ones, Root Note. Anyhow, we've got them placed with all those. It costs us various things. And anyhow, we're going to switch everything over to DistroKid because we think that that makes sense. But they can basically, uh, you know, take care of you for a much lower price. And I've mentioned it in past shows. You know, if you're a producer or an engineer and you're not uploading your own music, I would highly suggest you pass on this information to your clients because, you know, it's a low cost way of getting your music out there especially if you're a new band and you're just testing the waters. And if you click on the link on the right-hand side of the Working Class Audio website, uh, there's a banner for them for DistroKid, and you can get 10% off. They've created a nice little VIP page there for us. So uh, direct your clients or yourselves over there to distrokid.com through our website. And yeah, check it out. Really, really dig these guys, dig what they're doing. And I think you might dig it too. So there it is. So uh, that's it for the monologue today. Yes, it's a monologue, I know. Let's get to John Schiff. John was uh, super cool to come over to my house. He made it super easy. We didn't have to Skype. We just did it here. Uh, just had a conversation in person uh, here in my mixer and mastering room. So uh, let's get to it. John Schiff here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So welcome to my house. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, and uh, thanks Pleasure for to be here. thanks for coming over. You know, it's nice to be here in the uh, heart of the working class audio <laughs> podcast. The, yes, right here, this yeah. little room. It's amazing the gold leaf, uh, the chandelier. Oh yes, is that the, yeah, the chandelier. Is that Tiffany's. I, that is yes, yes, one. yes, nice. and the silver plated walls. Right, right, right. Also acoustically superior. Yeah, very, very warm. Right, 
It's right. all very warm. Yeah, yeah. It surpasses wood, I hear. Yes, it does. <laughs> and it's more expensive. And, uh, you know, Obviously. I know we're doing the whole working class thing, but that's sure. all bullshit. We're just really just, you know. Sure. It's all top notch here. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, fit for a king. You got to stick with the 1% these days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so what I wanted to talk about, a couple different things, really two phases. I want to talk about, first of all, to give people a bird's eye view of what you do now and then what led up to that, your background. So right now, if somebody said, what do you do, would you say, I am the manager of 25th Street Studios as well as a producer and engineer and mixer? Yeah, I, I guess I'm like, uh, I get bored easily, so I try and do lots of stuff all the time. Uh, I, Yeah, my main job, you know, what sort of pays the bills, I guess, is... Uh, my job at uh, yeah 25th Street Recording. It's a high-end commercial recording studio in Oakland. We opened about five years ago. I've been lucky enough to be there with them from essentially the beginning, mm -hmm. um, the beginning at least of the business, um, the project building it out was a couple years before I got there. You know, that's what occupies my days mostly. Uh, but I also do, you know, engineer and produce a number of records, you know, every year. I do a bit of live sound as well. That's been a big part of my life for a long time. So I still do. Uh, you know, maybe a dozen dates a year um, that I leave the studio and go out to do those. Some local, some, you know, in other countries or whatever. I try and stay sort of like music business interested, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm always dabbling in, you know, all kinds of projects and, and things that I find interesting in the community. And I'm always meeting new people and trying to collaborate in new ways. And, you know, I, tie, I try and tie all of that into my work at the studio for the time being. Uh, which has been really fun. So the studio, for those that don't know, is is owned by Dave Lichtenstein, and Dave is the son of Roy Lichtenstein, who is right. a, a contemporary of uh, Andy Warhol's, and mm -hmm. uh, I think they called his work but is it pop art. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Dave is when you see Dave, he's kind of the antithesis of what you'd imagine uh, a person who came from somebody. Like that, um, he he looks like he could be in Pearl Jam. Yeah, <laughs> really. Whenever I see him, I think, is that one of the guys? In no, that's Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Dave is. Uh, yeah, he's. Um, you know, I I've thought about this a lot actually, and I, I I guess I I guess I've come to the realization that I don't really know maybe what his dad would have been like or what Andy Warhol would have been like either. So I guess it's a little bit hard for me to compare. <laughs> yeah, or to assume you know what uh, what uh, that world was like. I'm sure it was very interesting growing up in a household where, you know, Uncle Andy was hanging out and, you know, all of these like amazing people that, I, you know, at that time, I think they were coming into their fame. But, you know, certainly now, you know, their 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 legacy is pretty undeniable. But, you know, at the time, I'm sure it was really interesting to grow up in that, you know, environment and everybody else that was around. I could just imagine. I you know. um, admittedly, I didn't even know who Roy Lichtenstein was. Mm -hmm. My wife did. And when I brought it up. And we were at a library one day. I said, uh, I think I just had coffee with you the day before. And I said, oh, I said, do you remember? Uh, I said, I had coffee with John Schempf, um, uh, who is the manager of that studio, the Lichtenstein guy. I said, yeah, here's his dad. Here's this book in this library about his dad. And my wife's eyes just got really yeah. big. She was like, <laughs> Roy Lichtenstein? Yeah. 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 Oh. And I was like, yeah, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was a huge art fan. I mean, I've been a huge art fan yeah, most of my life. Uh, you know, I really got into it maybe in like high school. And, you know, I, I I try to go to as many galleries as I can when I travel. And I just, you know, a passing fan, I guess. Uh, 
uh, hobbyist, if you will. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I was well aware of his work and really loved uh, all of this stuff before I ever knew Dave or was involved with the studio. And um, it's funny because it's like he's one of these artists that isn't it's not like he's. I mean, most people know it. Most people have seen the work, if, even if it's totally like something they don't recognize. Right? And I actually recognize the work, but I didn't, I never knew the guy's name. Yeah. I mean, I was walking down the street in Oakland uh, last week and I, there was an advertisement on a bus stop and it was like a Lichtenstein-esque painting and it was for like, you know, AIDS you know, testing or something like that, you know, but it's like, it gets used all the time. I mean, I travel around and I see big, you know, traveling exhibits of his work and all of that. And yeah, there's, mm-hmm. there's it, it like, I think he was, you know, in terms of significance, you know, maybe one of the most significant, uh, certainly American artists that's, that's, you know, that's ever lived. Um, you know, his, his work is everywhere. When you start, when you start, when you start it, noticing it, like, it yeah. You know, I was in Hawaii last year and it was like a, the coffee cup thing, the, uh, the, the sleeve, you know, so you don't burn your hand was like, their advertisement was like, some Lichtenstein-esque painting, you know, huh. and, and so it's funny. You say like you, maybe I notice it more, you know, but it's like you, once it's like you, when you drive a particular car. Yeah, that's right. Everybody else has my car. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, how did you how did you meet Dave? Uh, so let's see. I met Dave through a mutual friend, Steve Jarvis. Steve Jarvis is a guy who, if you don't know him, is a uh, uh, runs a rental company, high end studio rentals company in uh, the Bay Area, and has for a long, long time now. Uh, Steve and I met, we were just talking about this, uh, gosh, more than 15 years ago, I think, uh, by my estimation. You know, I've kept in touch with Steve over the years. Early on, I started working with Steve, and he really, uh, you know, helped mentor me in a lot of ways. At any rate, I I was on the road traveling um, a lot at that point in my life. I, uh, you know, it's about 20, 2011, I guess. I was traveling nonstop on tour as a sound engineer, as a tour manager. I was in the Bay Area just visiting. We were playing Yoshi's, I think, something like that, the group I was with. I'm, I'm not sure. I think we were Yoshi's in San Francisco at the time. Uh, you know, Steve called me and he's like, there's this studio being built and you got to come check it out. You know, it's it's really cool, whatever. And so um, I came over to the East Bay, you know, mostly to see Steve and to catch up with him. And uh, we went over to, you know, what is now the studio. And it was at that point, the first time that I saw it, it was like, um, you know, this totally just uh, like skeletal version, you know, wood framing and uh, concrete unfinished, you know, stuff like that. And it was sort of taking shape. And it was obvious that it was a pretty like involved project to say the least. And uh, I didn't really give it a second thought at that point. But, uh, but, you know, Steve Jarvis was like, you know, the person that really kind of like, you know, then introduced me to Dave and, you know, um, he wanted me to be aware of it. You know, that's Steve's great at that. You know, he's a great, like, he's a connector. connector. Exactly. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, this person should know this person or whatever. And, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, thinking, you know, any opportunity that might present itself down the road for us to, you know, all work together. And then we met again about a year later. Uh, we came back to Yoshi's actually with the same group I was traveling with. You know, this time the studio was like, pretty much done and was looking really good and it was like very very impressive to say the least (laughs) you know and to see something like that i mean you know growing up like uh you know whatever reading recording magazines or you know just being interested in that stuff and then seeing you know i've i mean i've since that time you know even before that i'd been in a number of like really large studios large format studios but you know they're always really impressive and especially a brand new one and when you walk in and you see these you know giant rooms and big console and all that it's like wow this is really like incredible you know yeah so but that was my initial my initial meeting was with jarvis and jarvis had been 
consulting with Dave to help him um, along the way with certain aspects of the build out, you know, um, advising about, you know, getting equipment and, you know, architectural consultations and things like that as well along the way, you know, so. So how did this managing the studio come up? I mean, I know you were traveling, but you, yeah. were, you were living not in the Bay Area. I wasn't. No, I had moved. You know, I'm originally from Stockton. And I, uh, you know, I've lived in the Bay Area on and off um, for a long time. Lived in San Francisco for a number of years. Lived in Berkeley for a number of years. And I had moved to Colorado about five years before that to, uh, you know, to do something different. And I was I was touring nonstop. There was a, you know, convenience to... Um, living in Denver that was nice, you know, and my family was like out there and they had have since all relocated out there, you know, my mom and dad, my brother and his family. Convenience because Denver's pretty centrally located. Yeah, exactly. So you can get to yeah, yeah, that's right. either coast and yeah. not too short or not too long of a time. That's right. You know, and even off to London, stuff like that, you know, it's actually quite convenient for that. So, um, you know, so I was living out there, um, having a great time in the mountains. I love Colorado, but you know, I was at this point where I wanted to, um, not be touring all the time. I wanted to not be traveling all the time because it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the traveling and I didn't enjoy the music or the touring or any of those things. Uh, I loved all of that. It was that I, I guess I felt like there wasn't a lot of room for advancement, um, in that particular path. I wasn't able to really do much more than I was doing. You know, there was nowhere to go from there for me. I, I couldn't, you know, I could go be with a different band, you know, I was getting offers to be production managing for other groups or whatever, but you know, it wasn't necessarily going to be like a huge bump in pay or a schedule change or anything. So I, I felt like, okay, I need to like break it up a little bit and, and kind of just shake it up and move somewhere and do something different. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, my wife and I talked about it and I said, you know, well, why don't we think about moving back to the Bay area? Um, we both had kind of, you know, pined to be back in the Bay. Um, we're both generally from here, you know, she has family that's, you know, from the Bay and, you know, she's from out here as well, <clears throat> actually both from Stockton. <laughs> uh, we didn't meet there, but, uh, um, interesting factoid, but, uh, uh, if you're from Stockton, it's interesting. Otherwise it's not, I guess, but, um, <laughs> but uh, we, uh, um, you know, and so, so getting off the road was like a, a priority at that point, you know, for career change more than anything. So I, I got off the road. I started coming out to the Bay Area basically just hustling. I like drove my car out with like a load of stuff and dropped it at my friend's house and was like, we're moving, we're coming back and I'm going to meet and talk to as many people as I can and get with as many contacts and like, you know, I'm just going to hustle. That's what I did. And so I, I talked to Jarvis at that point, you know, Steve Jarvis, and I was like, we were working on a couple of projects some remote things that had come up. You know, I was trying to consult with him about where to work, what to do. And, you know, my thought was I was going to cobble together a bunch of stuff. I was going to like do some live sound work. I was going to, you know, network with a few sound companies out here that I'd worked with, studios, artists, do whatever I could to make ends meet. You know, I don't come from any money or anything. So it was all about just like getting the hustle going. And so at that point, you know, the studio had opened, you know, and all of that stuff. And, and I kind of, you know, was visiting there and I recognized that, they had done this like amazing job of putting the studio together. It's like, you know, this incredible place and there's you know, all of this equipment and all of, you know, this infrastructure that had been built into it. But, um, you know, it seemed like they maybe needed some help with, you know, the business side of it, um, essentially like, you know, administrative studios are often dominated by, you know, people who are really passionate about recording and people who, um, want to be in the studio and they want to be in the control room with the band and you know they want to be like that person in the full sale ad in the magazine you know like <laughs> pointing at the window right you know like hey, do it again play something awesome yeah 
I'm going to record it in here in this big console. And so, um, and so I recognized that. And, you know, I, I was at a point in my career where I, I, I kind of felt like, um, you know, my ego didn't sort of need to be served by that in that way. Hmm. And I was trying to do different stuff anyway. So I came to Dave and I said, look, I said, uh, you know, I like doing administrative stuff. I had gotten really heavily into that when I was touring that part of it, you know, paperwork, admin, all of the advanced work, the logistics and stuff really interests me a lot. And so, you know, and I also saw that as a, a pathway that wasn't what everybody else was doing. I mm-hmm. saw that as something that I enjoyed that was different. You know, it was like, you know, we need like, you know, more administrative people that can help, you know, generate business and, and, and be there for businesses. And so, you know, so I presented myself to Dave in that way. And I said, Hey, look, I, I think that I can help you. So let's try it out for a period of time. I'll come in. I'll start doing some admin work. I don't want to be in the studio. I don't have any desire to be in the control room. I don't have any desire to press the record button or any of that. I'm just going to be out interfacing with clients, bringing people through the door, helping run the place in whatever capacity that I can and supporting the staff that you've already hired. You know, there are a couple of guys that he had hired at that point. And he said, okay. He said, let's try it. And so I went back to Colorado for a weekend and I loaded up the rest of my stuff and I drove out and I started my my job. I rented a room from a friend in El Cerrito and uh, I did that for like nine months or something. And then my wife was still out there finishing up her job and then she moved out and you know, <laughs> here I am like five years later. So you know. I guess it worked out. The probationary period is past. Yeah. Well, you know, it was funny. Like I, 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 I don't think I was even like as, uh, as sort of like, I, I didn't know necessarily what my role was going to end up as. And I, and I think one day, you know, a few, maybe a month or two into it, you know, uh, Dave was kind of like, Hey, this is studio manager. And I was like, studio manager. Like, I don't know if I signed up for all that, but, uh, but at that point, I mean, it would seem like it was like a good fit and everything and was getting along with everyone well. And so, wow. yeah. So <laughs> and whatever that means, I mean, you know, these days those roles are, you know, it's pretty different than I think. It used did to you be. say, okay, I'm going to do this. Did he, did he ask you how much you want? Did you, did you have to negotiate that with him? Did was it even brought up? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, I kind of came with a number in mind. Okay, you know, okay. and I presented Good. that to him. Yeah. Good. All right. It seemed fair. Yeah. Because sometimes these scenarios get explained, and that discussion never really gets explained, and so people are, I think, wondering, well, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Uh, not looking for a particular number, obviously, but just sure. the the process was that an awkward conversation to have with? Um, this- I don't. I don't remember it being an awkward conversation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like I think the thing to keep in mind with this project is that, you know, it was, you know, it was meant to be something big from the beginning. And so I think in Dave's mind, you know, having to hire some staff, you know, out of pocket at first before the place was was generating any revenue because it wasn't generating any revenue. There was zero activity going on. You know, there was like a session here, a session there, but it wasn't, uh, you know, it was brand new. Nobody knew about it. It was just, it was just absolutely blank slate. So... What do you think you bring to the table there? What's your strength? I think that, um, you know, my passion about, you know, administrative and organizational stuff is is a big asset for that place. You know, studios are a constant, like, organizational hassle. You know, they there's just stuff everywhere all the time, and it needs to be put into its place, and it needs to be cataloged and organized and inventoried and repaired and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so there's part of my personality that, that loves that, you know, that loves that task of just the, uh, the minutia and the small things and, and getting things really good and making things work really well. You know, I'm very passionate about if something's not working, especially that it gets working or mm-hmm. if something's consistently not working, that it goes away, you know, or something, you know? And so, so that's, that's part of it is I, you know, I'm very passionate about that. And I learned a lot of those lessons, like working with guys like Steve Jarvis, who just had this really amazing collection of stuff that went out for rental 
you know, because it needed to come back and it needed to be in great shape for the next person. And there was a certain care and uh, way of treating the equipment and the resources that I learned. And so that was a, a level of respect that I brought in there, realizing that it's somebody else's, you know, that's not my stuff. I don't own anything at that studio, you know, that's, that's right. somebody else's stuff. So, so that's been, that's been a thing that I think has been really helpful to the business. And, um, you know, and I, I kind of, I, I guess I find myself like being able to relate to the artist pretty well. You know, I, again, spending a lot of time on the road, I think taught me that, um, being, being with a band on the road, as you know, you've done, you know, you've done it. And it's like traveling around and you're out there like band of brothers, you know, like, yeah, you know, we're traveling, we're at the airport, we're at the hotel, we're getting drinks, we're doing whatever, you know, and, and you build up this camaraderie. And, and through that, I think you start to see what the artists go through and what the musicians go through and what their lives are like, you know, um, because these aren't recording engineers. These are guys who are like, you know, they go home and then they have to like cobble together work with another tour or studio work or whatever it is. And, you know, I was lucky in a lot of these, these tours that I worked on, you know, I've worked with these like incredible musicians, you know, a lot of LA based guys and, and girls, you know, amazing, like talent all the way around. And, and, you know, and so with that, I was able to learn a lot about that. So I brought a lot of that with me as well, you know, is that like specific experience that uh, the artists kind of go through, you know, I think we're pretty like, uh, um, focused at the studio on our world a lot of times, like saying, you know, like, this is the way it is, man. You know, this is like the pinnacle artists are like, they're in the studio and this is it. And it's kind of not it. You know, I think a lot of artists feel real tortured coming into the studio because they, you know, they're trying to put out a product that they know is going to be, you know, there forever. And that's a really difficult thing to deal with psychologically. And it's a lot of pressure. Every other day that they're not in the studio is like writing or like practicing with their band or like being on tour. You know, and so the vast majority of an artist's career is spent out on the road, you know, working. That's where their life is. And then they come into the studio for this focused amount of time. And so I think I've like tried to at least try to impart that to my staff and, you know, the others that I work with there, you know, that 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 is a real thing that exists. You know, this isn't the, their entire life and their entire world. And we need to recognize that when they come in to make them help them feel at home. So I've tried to bring a lot of that in as well. I think that's another main I mean, do you, what I do. I'm trying to like picture like your day to day. And I mean, do you sit down with the staff to have meetings and say, okay, look, this is kind of like the approach that we want to take. And yeah, somewhat, you know, um, that's probably the other thing that I do the most is I'm, I'm out and about a lot. I, I go out, you know, I leave the studio a lot. I have to be out in the community networking with people constantly to be able to bring work back into the studio. You can't sit in your place and expect the phone to ring or do ads or whatever. It will be a very limited business if you do that. And plus I'm a social guy. I like to go out and make relationships. You know, I, I made it a point to meet every single other, you know, studio that I could find, you know, and there's still more, there's so many studios, <laughs> which is great. I love the, like the healthy studio community is amazing, but, uh, you know, everybody has something different to offer and everybody has a different uh, approach to what they do. But, but, you know, in terms of my own staff, you know, I, I, I give them a lot of responsibility, I think. So like my day to day, you know, it's not so much based on meetings and approaches or things that come down from me. I mean, I see myself as like my day to day is like, how do I run the best facility possible? You know, how do I how do I make a place that's easy for people to work in? So if you come over, you know, and you want to come do a session at my studio, you're going to get someone who is a, a, you know, first of all, a nice person that's not going to be disrespectful or, you know, have some kind of attitude problem because that doesn't that just goes nowhere with me that will do as much or as little as you require of them. You can run them through the ringer and have them do set up every microphone in the house. Fine. Trust me, it's been done. Um, and, uh, or, you know, you can say, get out of my way. I just need you to come in here. I need you to answer one question. Then I need you to disappear. Fine. 
you know, no problem. We've got that. And so a lot of what I do with my staff on the day to day is like, make sure that they have all the tools that they need to succeed. I try and make as much, you know, any studio time that's not being used available to them to make sure that they are constantly like in the rooms, that they're constantly working, being comfortable with the technology, being comfortable with the speakers, being comfortable uh, with whatever they need, you know, to test that out. If people need a plugin, they need a piece of gear, they need whatever we sit down and talk about it. You know, and we talk about alternatives, we talk about what it's really going to be used for. You know, um, we talk about, you know, it's a big thing with us. It's like things that don't get used, get cycled out constantly. So it's like, we, we really want to stick to the tools that we, that we all use. And that's a, that's a conversation that we all have together from time to time. Um, and you know, when a client comes in, it's like, you know, I, I, Again, I'm out there, you know, raising awareness, I guess you could say, or doing a lot of outreach. But when a client comes to me, you know, I, I'm trying to immediately pass that off onto one of my staff members. Like, I want them to begin interacting with that client right from the very beginning. It's not my job in my mind to be in the middle of that interaction. You know, I want to, I want to say, okay, this guy's interested. Somebody emails me, say, you know, I want to book some time, a couple of days with my band. Cool. I'm going to hand you over to, you know, to Scott or Peter, Gabriel, you know, I want you to like be with these guys from the beginning, do the scheduling, you know, the budgeting, all that kind of stuff, you know, and then they feel like it's their client. And then there's a rapport that builds immediately with them. And then they're not going between some kind of third party person. So my day to day is like really focused on those interactions and making sure that those things are smooth and I'm there for them. So if there's a problem or somebody double books or there's a freak out or whatever, you know, which happens from time to time uh, with any business, then, you know, then I'm there for them and I can come in and step in as a mediator. And then that puts me in a good position. Hence the name studio manager. Yeah, right. You're exactly. Managing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but, but my job certainly is not to, uh, you know, not to get in the middle of that as much as I possibly can, but to be there, to be supportive and helpful. And when people call to give them the information they need and make sure people have the tools that they need. Obviously in five years, you've learned a vast amount. I mean, you came in with a lot of experience both from the admin side and the production audio side mm -hmm. so you you have a, a good perspective on all that not all studio managers i think do some are just admin people or some are just audio people sure so in five years you've really gotten comfortable and kind of figured out a workflow that that happens do you see in other studios poor studio management do you see how they could do better with studio management? Yeah. Um, you know, it's really tricky. I think that from what I've seen in my community in, you know, which is Oakland East Bay all the way that people are doing a really great job. And I think that it's full of really super passionate people. And I'm totally like hundred percent serious, like not, you know, these guys and girls and everybody that's involved in this community are like, absolutely like the most passionate that you could possibly be about what they're doing. And so I think that, you know, if anything, we struggle together as a community in the Bay Area, because the overarching music businesses evaporated, you know, I think in terms of specific studio management stuff, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I go into so many places that are really so well run, you know, I, I'm blown away with with you know, with some of the, we were talking earlier about the, you know, the FM building, it's been, you know, different names, but you know, the stuff that's going on in there, you know, um, the new and improved studio is just like, uh, you know, it's unbelievable these days. FM, they just got a new, or, you know, the other room got a new console. It looks amazing. It's incredible. Carl's over there, you know, just killing it. And it's bad. You know, those guys are great. You know, John and his new place. It's like the, the guys at Santo, um, 
you know, on and on and on and on and on fantasy, you know, whatever. Everybody's like super just doing their thing as much as possible to like, you know, just really do it. And, um, you know, so I don't see any like errors there. I think everybody's doing their job as well as they can. You know, I think as a, if anything, as a community where we sometimes lose focus on what's more important in the big picture. Cause to me, you know, being someone who's out there trying to find business, you know, I have to constantly ask myself, you know, what's beyond the band coming in for three days and tracking, how do we generate a more sustainable community, you know, for all of us to benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, cause I don't think there's too many studios. I, I think that there's always just the right number of studios, you know, <laughs> and, uh, what the market will bear and it's what the market will bear. That's right. And the studio business is like super difficult. And from my estimation, it always has been, I haven't ever talked to anybody that's just been like, you know, I mean, there are stories of, wow, back in the day, you know, we were at the plan, we were getting, you know, we were paying those guys $8,000 a day or, you know, whatever the number is. But, you know, if I talk to Arnie, he's not like, oh man, we're just making money hand over fist or whatever. It's like, you know, their expenses were high, you know, they're paying staff and they're paying for gear. And you know, those prices were high back then, you know, Studer tape deck used to be like, you know, 80,000 bucks, you know, you can buy them for like 8,500 now, but yeah, you know, I mean, so things were not cheap then, you know, um, and, and, you know, margins were very different. Margins were totally different, you know, but I think relatively speaking from what I can, you know, put together from those conversations, you know, things are like pretty similar, you know, in terms of their difficulty, like in running a business, you know? So, so again, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly asking myself, like, you know, how do we, how do we grow the, um, the business bigger? And, and one thing I would say, and I think that we all, we all could probably do a better job, um, focusing more on what creates a healthy music industry in the Bay area, um, versus like what creates a healthy studio. Um, because, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you can go to like the hardware store or whatever, the tool store, and you can buy a hammer and crowbar and a saw or whatever. But like, you know, if you don't like know how to put the house together, you know, then it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And maybe that's a bad analogy, but no, like, no, no, I see. Or if nobody wants that. to build a house, I guess you could say, then sure. what's the point of it? You know, right. you can have, you can have the best studio in the world. I, 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 you know, I absolutely will tell anybody that comes through my doors that I think that we have one of the best studios in the world. I absolutely believe that I've been to a lot of studios all over the place and our place is amazing. 25th street is a very special place. Thank you. Say. Thank and you. I mean, I having worked there, just a couple times i enjoyed it thoroughly thank you i wanted to stay longer but thank you they didn't want to keep paying me (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know but but it's it's like you know we're only we're only going to be successful if our community is successful around us and and so that's that's the stuff where i think we as a community i think it's like supporting songwriters and supporting bands and supporting the the sort of the publishing side the creation side i think is what's important and i think that that's what gets lost because we're you know we're we're really interested in our tools you know, maybe way more so than a lot of other industries. And that's cool. You know, I, I, I love it just as much as the next person, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that, that we have to focus on, you know, what makes a healthy uh, community. And so together that's, and, and Hey, you know, again, like it's not just me that thinks that I think that most people are on that page as well. They're out there in the community, but I think as, as much as we can do to, to help support the, you know, the greater business, I think is, is probably, you know, it's good. It's the dirty work. It's the hard work. You know, I mean, I, I, I constantly like, you know, we talk about this, talk about staff meeting. I mean, this is something that I'm, that I'm, that I do talk about when we do have our occasional meetings a lot is like, you know, what are we doing to find clients? What are we doing to get out there and like support our community? And, um, 
you know, and that's important. You can change your prices around and you can get different gear and you can offer specials. Let's talk fine. about that yeah. a bit. What the sense of competition, obviously, you know, competition is healthy, but some would argue that, and I, I'm, I, I don't think you guys are doing this, but some studios, it's like a race to the bottom. Yeah. Their rates. Yeah. And it can be, I don't know, it can be frustrating if, if, if you're, it's hard to make the case to, musicians some musicians get it some don't some just see the price and not the bigger picture of what's involved mm -hmm. so can you speak on on those yeah on that topic and what you've dealt with over the years and yeah yeah trying to find a happy medium to keep people coming in the door and not price yourself out of the market sure i mean one thing that you know we talked about obviously very early on being part of a studio project that was uh you know, that was brand new was, you know, what's, what's our pricing look like? And, you know, we had a number in mind. I remember we, I think we wanted to get like a thousand dollars a day for the room, um, in the beginning. And I said, fine, because I had just gotten there. I didn't know what the market was like, you know, then the reality sets in because people call and they say, oh, I've got $400, you know, I've got $500. And, you know, when the calendar is completely bare, then, and you need a staff that needs training and you've got to work out your bugs and on and on and on, then, you know, sure. But at some point, you know, yeah, when things start getting better or busier, then you start, you know, recognizing that you're not only diluting the market potentially, but you're also, um, you know, not making any money. And so, <laughs> uh, so the prices rise, you know, it's like any business. I mean, everybody goes through this. I, I think this is across all kinds of different industries. Um, you know, it's an absurd uh, business, the studio business. Um, the amount of overhead and the cost is absolutely ridiculous, you know, based on the kind of money that you can bring in. Um, certainly, if we were, again, located in a, in a major music market like Los Angeles, things would be somewhat easier. We would be able to charge at least double, probably more like triple from the experiences that I've had down there, even very recently working in studios where I've paid double for rooms that are vastly inferior in most ways still cool and awesome and i love working in la it's great but like you know it's not that place it's not my place you know it's not it's not 25th street so um you know one of the things that really bothered me was like the idea that there was this sort of sliding scale and because i think that the music business is um i think that there's a lot of artists that are out there that i try and support every day that are like they don't have a lot of money, but they know that they need to spend a little bit of money to get their product out, you know? And I, I do a lot of marketing out to like Sacramento, Stockton, Modesto, you know, South Bay, North Bay, places that are underserved, Salinas, you know, places that are underserved. They don't have like necessarily rooms like that out there. Again, there's great studios everywhere, but a place like ours and, you know, and people come in and they, they want to pay a price. But, you know, I think that for too long, we've been in this mode as a community that like, uh, you know, people just know how to negotiate or they know what to, you know, what to, you know, you know, you know, if you're in the know, then you can call this guy and then he'll give you a good price, but you got to ask, you know, and that bothers me because the, the problem is, is that there's a lot of projects that are going to benefit from that, that don't need that kind of price break or that they don't necessarily deserve that kind of price break, frankly, in my opinion. Whereas, you know, a guy who's like a rapper out in Modesto who wants to come to a big studio to really make his mark. That's the client that I want to support, you know, and those are the people who are going to be, you know, paying through the nose when they call a studio because they're going to, they, you know, it's going to be like, well, it's full rate, blah, 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 this and that. And then they go, okay. And then they cobble it together and they come in and, you know, they might get a kind of a cold experience out of the whole thing. Um, so, you know, what I try and do is, you know, or what I did is I tried to, you know, get a rate together that I thought was like flat and set. And that was a really important thing for me. You know, I didn't want to 
I didn't want to be in this mode where, where people were, you know, wondering what to pay or how much it was going to be or feeling like, you know, if you can ask or know who to ask or who to talk to, you would get a better price. I remember, I think it was tape op actually. They, they published a thing a couple of years ago in their magazine. And I, I was shocked because you know, they were like, here's what we're doing with all of our advertisers. We're going to charge one price. And this is the price that people will now pay for the ads, no matter if they're the biggest company or they're the smallest company, this is going to be the set price. Because in our industry and in publishing, if you know how to ask or you work through an agent, you can often get a better rate. But we felt like that was unfair. And I read that article and I was like, I had no idea that that industry was that way, you know? So me being, you know, whoever, like not a publishing guy or not somebody who does a lot of advertising in magazines would have easily called them and paid a, a price that would have been very different than what somebody else would have called, you know, in and, and, and tried to do from another company or something like that. Right. So, and that, and that really like stuck with me. And I said, you know what, th this is like something that seems more aligned to the economy that we're in and that we're entering into now. I think that we have a lot of people that are coming into the music business that are young. I mean, that's always a thing for me. I'm like, I want to support the young community. I want to support the people that are coming up because that's my best chance of like having a hit record of having that holy grail sort of thing, you know, the, like, you know, cranking out the hits, like, you know, when green day came to fantasy, how old were those guys when they made dookie? They were pretty young, I think, you 19 know? or something. Yeah. So like, you know, that's, that's an example. And I think it's too easy to forget that sometimes where like, you know, um, these are the people that we need the most in our community. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. You know, these are, this is the business that we need to, that we need to develop together. And the best way to do that is to make them feel comfortable and at home when they come into the studio and not to make them feel alienated either by the price or by the vibe or whatever it is, you know, like I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that that space is ready and that my engineers are prepped as much as they can possibly be for whatever style is going to come through that door. So do you do a, a fair amount of advance work to try to say what, what is it you're going to need? Because we'd like to get you set up so yes. that we make the most use of your or best use of your time. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's a huge thing for us actually. And that a lot of that comes from my, I guess, you know, the touring stuff and, and, you know, advance work and prep is kind of everything in that mm -hmm. world. And so for me, the client doesn't want to come in and have an empty room where you're going, Oh, we just got here. Let me flip on the lights and start setting up microphones, <laughs> you know, because you know, I, and you know, and, and we don't want to be in that situation either. And it's a lot more efficient for us, especially, you know, we're busy all the time, you know, every, every day is booked. Um, with something. And, you know, we book out weeks and weeks in advance at this point, which is great and awesome. And I'm so happy that, you know, the community can support us. Um, but, you know, so, you know, but the paperwork that we do is important because, you know, you know what to leave up and what to leave out and how to transition between sessions and all those kinds of things make it, make it important. I feel like we have a pretty good communication going between our staff there. And, you know, we don't have any assistants. We don't have any interns at all. Everybody that's there is capable of making a very, very, very high quality record. And we've put a lot into that staff to make sure that they have the time and the resources that they need to do what they need to do on any project. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Hope you're enjoying this, this conversation that John Schempf and I are having here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to take a moment out to do a sponsor break here with Audio-Technica. Hey, I want to hip you to this mic, uh, the AT2035. And I'm going to be honest with you. The price point and uh, my initial, you know, reaction to a low-cost mic uh, had me a little suspicious of uh, its capabilities. And recently, I went over to Bird and Egg Studios with uh, our friend Nino Michella, who's been on the show. And Nino and I did some samples of the 2035, the 4047, and the 5040. That's right. 
three different price points. And the 2035 was the least expensive in that bunch. The uh, retail price is 249 although I've seen it online for 149 So I'll just tell you, this little thing kicks ass. It performs way better than I imagined it would. Uh, and that was just me being judgmental ahead of time. I was blown away. It's a large diaphragm condenser, and it's uh, it's got a very smooth and natural sound, very low noise. It handles high SPL, just like many of the Audio-Technica mics do. It comes with the shock mount. It's got a switchable uh, 80 hertz high-pass filter and a 10 dB pad. It's cardioid. There's no other patterns. Uh, but I tell you, for 149 the way this thing sounds is amazing. And I'll tell you, you should check it out. I, we did the samples. I uploaded them. Go to uh, the WCA um WCA bonus content, and you'll see there's a page with some Audio-Technica samples, and the newest samples at the top of the page are there. You can download them. I, there's a there's a link. Uh, you can download the raw 48K uh, 24-bit files. Have a listen. See what you think. Uh, we uh, did some samples of some drums. We did some bass and some piano, and I was I was blown away. As a drum overhead, definitely. And it, we just did a mono overhead, and you can download uh, all the files that we we have for you are just WAV files. You can dump dump them into any DAW, just line them all up, and uh, or line them up at the beginning. They should all be consolidated properly, as as they should. And uh, we recorded the kick drum with the BP40, the mic that I'm talking into talking into right now. And so you can like move the kick in and out and just blend the kick in this one one wave file of of the AT2035. And I'm telling you, for that price, that mic sounds killer to me. I think it's a it's a serious contender and definitely true working class in that that way. So take a look. Ta or rather take a listen and see what you think. I think it's pretty cool. AT2035. 249 list, 149 street price. Uh, very basic uh, features that you would expect, uh, high pass and and uh, and pad, and a two-year limited uh, warranty as well. So check it out, AT2035. Let's get back into it here on the Working Class Audio Podcast with Mr. John Schimpf. Let's do it. Why don't you have any interns? Well, as a manager, I feel like it's, um, it's a management hassle. Um, and I don't mean to marginalize the, you know, the work that an intern can do at a facility that needs them. I think that it's important. And I, I, in some ways, you know, I feel, I feel bummed out a little bit that I can't give more people the opportunity to come in and work at the studio in that capacity. But, you know, for me, like I have my hands full with what I've got now. And so adding people in that don't have any knowledge about what they're doing or just a limited amount of knowledge and then trying to, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like it takes away from the client experience. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I just can't, can't do at this point. And again, you know, I, I want to give opportunities for young people to come in or anybody to doesn't have to be young, you know, anybody that's interested in coming into the studio, but I, I do find it ex exceptionally difficult to schedule and maintain any kind of intern or assistant pool, even though I get tons of requests for it all the time, you know? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, but, when I ran my studio, it was, <clears throat> it, it was so, there were so many, uh, intern requests that I created a, uh, um, not an auto reply, but basically kind of a, uh, Google had a thing in Gmail where you could like, you know, set up yeah. some, you know, an, a, a quick reply. And I would just like go to that and cut and paste and move on because it was, it was overwhelming. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and again, I think there's always going to be this huge pull of passionate people that love doing that or love the idea of doing it. You know, I mean, honestly, frankly, the older I get, I, I don't feel like I need to like engineer another thing. It's not something that like is like drives me really big time anymore. You know, I, I like other stuff, you know, I, I love the music industry and I love the business, but like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily enjoy some of the things like I used to because I don't know, I get burned out or bored or whatever with things. But let me ask you some stuff that, um, talking about minutia, some people, like if you can't deal with minutia, you better check out or fast forward past this part. But <laughs> I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the systems you have in place to run that studio? Like from an organizational perspective, like inventory of gear or mm -hmm. uh, management of schedule, like, is there any uh, client relation? Uh, I think it's called CRM software. Yeah. yeah. Any, anything like that, that the st other studio owners who are listening, who are key to that kind of a thing will pick up on? Well, I think it's, um, you know, studios are, you know, it's a service business. It's like a hotel, right? I, I think that that's a pretty apt comparison in a lot of ways. I think that the only way that you can, that you can truly keep a handle on all of those things, inventory, whatever, all the minutia, like you said, I think that the only way that you can do that is to set an example for a high standard and stick to that standard as aggressively as possible. Mm -hmm. So I think that you can put a million systems into place, you know, where something goes, like how you wrap a cable or, you know, where that ends up or whatever. But for me, it, you know, it all goes back to the staff again. It's like, as long as we're on the same page as much as possible about how things should be done, then things will get done that way. And that's the, that's the one thing that I really do expect from my staff day in and day out is that we're doing as much as we can do within our schedules to make sure that things are put back properly, to make sure that things are maintained properly. I mean, a lot of the problems that I see in studios, technically speaking, you know, just in terms of minutia is like things get broken, cables get frayed, microphones get broken, mic stands or, you know, break and wear out. And the problem is that generally speaking, I mean, from my experience, like the reason why that stuff happens is because it's, it's not handled properly in the first place. So if I'm ever going to put a system into place, it's usually something that prevents that. And it could be something simple. Like, you know, we have a little trolley cart that we put all of our microphones on that goes between the mic locker and, and the room. It, it might seem like overly OCD, but you know, I, I often go through that and make sure that, you know, the boxes are stacked neatly on the cart and that the shock mounts are in an area and that, you know, because what happens is if a bunch of stuff gets piled up on there, then all of a sudden a shock mount gets bent a little bit. Well, that shock mount was like 120 bucks or whatever, and you can't really fix it. So you got to replace it or like, you know, a cable gets stressed in a weird way. And, oh, well, guess what? That's this weird cable and it's really difficult to fix or whatever. And so, you know, it, it, when those things start to stack up and when maintenance goes unreported, that's like a huge problem. And so we have maintenance logs as well. And that's another thing. If anything breaks, if anything is broken, even a little bit, mic stand, mic clip, microphone, cable, outboard piece of gear, anything, it gets written down or it gets pulled immediately out of the inventory. Absolutely. I have zero tolerance for anything not working in the studio. Guitar amp, whatever it is, goes in the shop. And that's where it stays until it gets fixed. And we try and fix it as rapidly as we can. Now, obviously, you know, if you've worked a 12-hour session and there was, you know, eight people in the band and you set up 35 microphones and there's stuff everywhere, you know, you got to kind of 
understand that that's part of the process. And so you can't get too detail oriented and go, why, why isn't this put away or whatever, this and that, you know, especially as you get busy, you got to accept a certain level of chaos. But I think that we can do things along the way, you know, in terms of systems and inventory is, is the same thing. You know, I think if you make sure that you're trusting your staff and you make sure that your staff is, uh, you know, doing a good attentive job at keeping things together, then, you know, then they have, they, you, you got to make sure that they have investment in what they're doing mm-hmm. so that they know that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's an SM57, you know, you can't just throw it around, you know, it, because you know, what's going to happen is you're going to put it on the thing and are you going to leave it on the ground? Or are you going to do something with it? And that's going to get scratched up and that's going to get some more scratched up and it's going to get scratched up again. Then the grill's going to get dented. And then, you know what, you're going to set it up and the client who's the drummer is going to look down and go, God, that microphone looks like it's been through the war. And you know what? They might not say anything, but then they start looking around. And then it's like, oh, look at that. That's weird. There's all this dust in the corner. And oh, that cable's kind of frayed. And this doesn't match that. And that's not the right thing for this. And the more and more of those things start to stack up, then in the client's mind, it goes to a different place. Now, I run a super high-end facility, so I think it's on me to be more attentive to those things. Mm-hmm. But I think that it, it's, a, it's a thread that runs through every studio where if you maintain your standards to a really high level – and you make sure that things are really working, you're going to be busier and you're going to be more successful. Hmm. And that's just an easy thing that anybody can do. And I really do think it's easy because most of the things that we have in the studio that break or wear out or need to be fixed are really simple to fix. The most rudimentary soldering skills will get you through about 80% of what you need, you know, on your day-to-day operations at the studio, fixing a cable, working on a pair of headphones, whatever, you know, that stuff's pretty easy. So, and it's something that you can teach yourself on a YouTube video, you know, I <laughs> mean, for damn sure. <laughs> so like anything else, you know, uh, so, so, you know, but that in terms of minutia, that's, that's what I get into, okay. you know? And so I don't, I don't do anything specific. Like I don't, you know, there's no, you know, you don't have to check in a microphone and check out a microphone. You know, we're one, we're a one room facility for most, you know, we have another, you know, a smaller, you know, control room as well, but it's like, you know, we, it's not going to go anywhere. It shouldn't go out the door. If it goes out the door for a remote, then it's on that person to keep track of that stuff and make sure that it comes in. But, you know, we're all in it to make sure that that stuff is taken care of because they're all, they're our tools. They're not my tools. They're not Dave's tools. They're all of our tools. We all use them. And it's, you know, it's just basic respect. If you screw up a mic or you drop something or whatever, fine. So be it. You know, I'm not going to have a big like fit about it, but it's like, I am going to have a fit about it if you just put it back in the damn mic locker, <laughs> you know, and the next person pulls it out right. and it doesn't work. Right. And you're like, what the hell happened to this mic? Right. Go, I dropped it last right. week. And like, what the fuck? You have high expectations for your staff and high expectations for the presentation of, of the business so that- That's right. It is a, a success and it is those little things, especially, you know, if, if you're going to be laying out any money mm-hmm. to somebody, you have expectations of results and- That's right. And if, and if let me add this. If something- if some piece of equipment does not work 1% of the way and the other 99% of all of the functionality is there, there is a 99% chance that the person using it will move on to another piece of gear. So if a piece of gear is just broken a little bit, mm-hmm. then it's probably going to get passed up. So you might as well not even have it in the rack, in my opinion. You know, right. I had a pair of uh, DBX 160s that I love. They're great. You know, two rack space, side by side, you know, they're, they're awesome. The meters constantly don't work on those things <laughs> like since i got to the studio the meters would go in and out i'd pull them out get them fixed oh it was this chip oh it was this meter but finally you know and just last week two weeks ago whatever i had him back at, with my technician and and he's like i got him here on the bench 
I don't know what's wrong. You know, I said, well, I got to fix the meters because what happens is if the meter doesn't work, the rest of the unit works perfectly. They work fine. They've always worked fine sonically and they work great and the controls work and you can still see what's going on with the LED, whatever. But because that VU meter doesn't work, nobody uses them. You know, irrational, not, doesn't matter. The, what matters to me is the fact that I got a piece of gear in there that people aren't using because of one little thing that doesn't get fixed. And, you know, um, we finally fixed it. It was just like, a little cable that was getting stressed when it was actually mounted in the rack at an angle for all of you 160 owners. Um, if your meters don't work, <laughs> 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 you know, and it was like a cheap fix. And most of the things that do break in the studio are really inexpensive to fix. And there are some really amazing technicians here in the Bay area that, that I think do an, an amazing job at keeping our places running, help keep our places running that are very, very reasonable, you know, and I just could never see having a piece of equipment that's, you know, you got a $4,000, you know, Neve mic pre and the switch doesn't work and it just sits in the rack with a piece of tape over it. It's like, I don't get it. You know, I used to work at this studio in uh, Petrero Hill in San Francisco and the owner, uh, would just put up a bunch of gear that <clears throat> as he called it, I think he called it FDO for deception only. Right. Like <laughs> literally, I mean, it was just like there to kind of like wow people. Yeah. But, like it either wasn't hooked up or it didn't work. And that stuck with me is that's not cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's shocking actually how it, uh, that goes on at the highest levels. Uh, uh and, um, you know, I, I, frankly, we've gotten business. I mean, straight up, like people have come in and been like, I was at a place and there was a bunch of stuff that was broken and it pissed me off. And I really appreciate that everything works here. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, you know, if you don't got, you know, the the 200 bucks to get a switch fixed or something, you don't have it. And that's just the way it is, you know, and you can't fix it yourself. I get that, but it shouldn't be in the rack. Right. You know, <laughs> like, right. you know what I'm saying? So, or, or, you know, you show up to a studio and there you got this big equipment list and then, oh, we can't use that because that's broken. Oh, you can't use that. And, you know, and this isn't just like a, a story. I mean, that happens once in a while. I mean, that's like pretty common. You guys are a, a large facility, a, a well, I'll just say you're like a like a five star hotel, mm -hmm. and you've got the resources to you know stay on top of that maintenance. The smaller studio that's typically run by maybe one, maybe two folks that is like possibly a co op situation is not maybe as organized as you guys. Does not have the financial resources that that, that others may have. You know their their margins are to a point where they're not always booked. A piece of gear fails. They don't have, as you said, the $200 to fix a switch yeah. or pay the bench fee for the tech. What's your advice to those smaller studios? How can they really provide that level of service and still kind of stay, you know, within their means? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. You know, I I, I started, I actually uh, ran a studio out in Stockton for a number of years, um, right when I was out of college. And we, we had those issues. I mean, I haven't always, you know, certainly <laughs> the majority of my time spent uh, in the industry has not been in the five-star, you know, hotel. It's been in the, uh, you know, the Motel 6 with the doors on the outside and the awesome Vietnamese restaurant downstairs. That was actually a exactly. place in Stockton that I loved. Um, <laughs> made me think of that. But uh, um you, you know, I, I think that in a broader sense, whatever you do, it's got to be totally client focused. And even though we have all kinds of resources at our disposal, which is awesome, it still comes down to the basics. You know, like one of the biggest upgrades that we finally made uh, was that we simply normaled together some patch points on our last maintenance cycle that made it so if you wanted to listen to a CD, you didn't have to patch any patch cables. You could just press a button on the console. 
or if you wanted to listen to the output of Pro Tools, you could just press a button on the console. You didn't have to patch anything. Um, it's a minor thing, but it's like the kind of stuff that I'm always trying to keep in mind when I'm when I'm there and when I'm at the studio. I'm like, if I'm the least technically savvy person in the world, can I come in and use this studio? Because that's what I want. I don't want it to be overly complicated. And so I think what happens with smaller studios from time to time is that there's a lot of gear hanging out and there's a lot of gear that may not get used very often or ever or looks cool. And that's fine, you know, but I think that if you can narrow your focus down to the things that really work and put your resources smartly into the day-to-day operations of your studio, then you're going to be more successful. So I think that that's a place potentially that is a pitfall for studios um, is that they get involved with equipment, tape decks, sorry to say, can be problematic. I mean, trust me, we have a top-of-the-line tape deck. You know, I just had to buy a meter from Switzerland, and it was like $100 just to get it shipped. You know, I mean... And again, you know, if you're going to take on anything in your studio, it has to work all the way because if it doesn't work all the way, then people won't use it ever. That's the kind of thing. So, uh, you know, tape's great. If you want to buy a tape deck and you want to have that as part of your service, you know, John Vanderslice does an amazing business, like, because he has an ethos that is surrounds, you know, that is, that is based on like tape workflow. And that's awesome. I love it. He's got like a theme, you know, it's like a theme that runs through it. And that, that whole thing runs through the whole thread of what they do over there. And that's great. But they also take a lot of, you know, time to make sure that that is all working and that those tape machines are reliable for them because that's their backbone of what they do. So if you want a tape machine or a Pro Tools rig or whatever it is, it doesn't matter what the technology is. Just make sure that it's working all the way. And you understand it all. The and way. that you understand it all the way. Exactly. Um, and that, you know, it's a technical industry. So if you're running a studio and you're a studio owner, expect to pay a much higher bill uh, if you don't know any, you know, how to work on the equipment. It's not a prerequisite. But if you can't solder and you can't change a fuse and you can't do any of those things, fine. But it's going to cost you more money. So you got to budget that in. I think a lot of small studio owners see the drop in, incredible drop in uh, analog tape deck prices and they go oh I'll, i'm gonna grab up this old mci or this old you know got a deal on you know an otari and they get them in with good intentions mm-hmm. but the reality sets in that a tape machine's care and feeding is is a whole nother level of bullshit that, oh yeah and you're you're oh, either yeah. you're either in up for it or you're not up for it and if you're not don't spend i i, I always think to myself why do people spend their their money and or resources number one they got a the maintenance and all that and if you do it half-assed it's pointless that's you could put that into like making sure that your patch bay or your console or whatever Mm -hmm. it is is working a hundred percent that's right you know i mean there's nothing more disappointing than walking up to a uh $350,000 $350,000 console and grabbing the monitor pot and it's like scratchy, <laughs> you know, I'm like, really? Like, oh my gosh, like seriously, you know, um, you know, and I, I think that the other important distinction to make is, uh, if you are a small studio owner, I think you have to do some really like, or excuse me, if you're any studio owner, if you're any business owner, you have to do some soul searching, like right up front and be very, very realistic with yourself, with whatever business sense you can muster and say, you know, is this something where I'm trying to survive and pay my bills and pay my mortgage or pay my rent or pay my car payment or pay for a taco later, whatever? Is this like what I'm relying on to do this? 
Or is this something I'm having a lot of fun with that I love as a hobby, right? Is it, is it a hobby or is it a business? Is it a little of both? It doesn't matter what it is. It just matters that you realistically reflect upon that for a few moments before you like start your day sometimes and, uh, and, 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 and put that towards your business, you know, because if you just love to record and you have a cool space and you love to just like have eclectic bands in and you, that's just what you do, but you don't necessarily need that to survive. Buy the old rickety tape deck yeah. and work on it yourself. Do whatever you're going to do. Cool, man. That's fine. You know, and your clients are going to know what's up and that's the vibe and that's the thing. And if they got to wait around a little bit, cause something breaks, that's cool. It's probably going to be an inexpensive spot because you're just doing it because you're passionate about it. But if you are trying to run that as a business where you're going to pay your bills and support yourself, then I think you got to take a much harder look at what you're doing, you know, and I think you got to take a harder look and it doesn't mean that you got to go out and spend a million dollars. It just means that you have to make a little bit smarter decision. You know, as I look around being part of a big studio that, you know, has all kinds of resources, you know, I oftentimes look at much, much smaller studios, much far less equipped studios. And I say to myself, dang, I could make a lot of money at that place. I could turn that place around and make a ton of money there. And that's the difference. You could have a reality TV show. Right. Like these guys <laughs> that come in and, you know, the bar fixer, yeah, the yeah. business fixer. Yeah. And you could, like, turn studios around. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know what? I Actually, I'm glad you said that because I'm a big fan of the show Bar Rescue. You know, oh, John, yeah, yeah. John Taffer is the guy. Yeah, yeah. This guy wrote a book about management. And it's like, uh, you know, it's not specifically about bars. But if anybody's out there and they want to, like, get awesome advice on management, I suggest John Taffer's book. You can download it uh, just on Amazon, you know, ebook, or you can get the book. And it's... I mean, it's fantastic. It's like amazing the way he talks about stuff. And it relates to the same stuff because it's service business oriented, right? So it's standards, it's uh, training, it's like finding the right people to work with you. It's about attracting clients. Very, very similar. Very lots of crossover. I'll put a I'll put a link in the WCA awesome. recommends page. Uh, special recommendation from John Schimpf. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. Um and then the, just a kind of a parting thought, we always kind of talk about, you know, gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the, you know, the balance of gear as, and, uh, gear lust and stuff like that. You made a comment earlier that really is obviously sticking with me enough that I'm bringing it up now. Your comment earlier about we're in a funny business where we have an unusual fascination with our tools as compared to other businesses. Yeah. Like imagine if you owned a factory and you like would sit around and wax poetic about, you know. I don't know, some laser cutter, some like, you know, sheet metal cutter or something like that. The, it's interesting when you think about those businesses, it's like, they just like, they, they make the investment in, in the piece of equipment and they make sure that it runs properly. It's safe. You know, it's Mm -hmm. meets all these basic standards of safety and operation to keep that business running. But it's not necessarily the focus of their business it's the customer and the product that's That's the focus and i think that studios really i'm just kind of going back over our conversation here a second ago about small studios like getting too worried about like let me just get a rickety old tape machine and i'll say i do analog tape and that's hip and that's cool Mm -hmm. but instead they could put that into even if they had an old beat up console they could put a little money into that console make sure it runs totally smoothly and concentrate on the customer experience, the, the artist experience so that when artists come in, they're super comfortable. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I, it's just, that's, I'm just r- kind yeah, of yeah. ranting here. I know, but it's not really a question. It's just like, 
you've already talked about it. Yeah, well, I, you know, there's a quick thing that comes to mind here, if I can share. Um, a close friend of mine out in Colorado is a, uh, he's an engineer. Yeah, we joke like a real engineer. <laughs> oh, like, like, <laughs> right. Like, you know, like a mechanical that, you know, engineer yeah, or you know. chemical engineer. Yeah, he's a mechanical engineer. He, uh, he works at, uh, uh, on windmills, wind turbines, um, oh, okay. and testing equipment, uh, out in Colorado. And, uh, Brilliant guy. And he is also a very um, excellent auto mechanic. And um, for a time in his life, you know, that was something he wanted to do was to be a professional mechanic. You know, I, I also love to work on cars. I love I love all things mechanical and I love to work on all of my cars and do maintenance and do big things and small things and whatever. It's great. And, uh, you know, he has really nice wrenches. Like he has a set of really nice like snap on open-ended wrenches right combo wrenches i have like craftsman wrenches which are still really nice but you know they're not as nice as the snap-ons and we we're talking about this at some point because i was lusting over a set of you know snap-on wrenches <laughs> i mean what what auto mechanic does it <laughs> but um or mac or you know insert whatever your high-end tool is you know and that and, and you know this this again could be in the audio world the same thing and i said you know you know it, i really want these wrenches it's really great and this and that and he says you know he says the thing is like a craftsman wrench is going to get the job done every time. And it's like really good, but you know, well, or maybe not every time, but the craftsman wrench is going to be a good day to day thing. But occasionally a client comes in with a car and there's a nut on some part of the engine that is totally stripped off. That is like really messed up. And if you use a snap on wrench, because it's a higher quality wrench and because it's got better, you know, more precision engineering and, and precision machining on the actual wrench, I'm going to have a much higher success rate of actually getting that nut off than using another wrench, right? And so I said, oh, well, that's that's cool. I hadn't thought of it that way, you know? So it's not that, you know, high-end tools aren't, you know, they, they serve a lot of different purposes, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So as you're like out there pining over these uh, tools and thinking of, you know, looking through magazines or whatever, I mean, that's something I ask myself constantly is like, when it comes to my client, right? Because I could sit there and fumble on that engine nut all day long with my wrench and can't get it off. And then I have to cut it off or I have to use a torch <laughs> or I have to do whatever I got to do as an auto mechanic. And I'm wasting all this time, my own time or the client's time. And I'm having to charge them more money wherein I could have had the right tool for the job or a better right tool for the job and gotten it done that much quicker. Those are the things that I look at when it comes to gear for me. Is it like, if, is it a tool that I can use to make my own life easier? And is it a tool that will also save my clients some time you know, it's like a V76 mic pre, you know, you plug a microphone into it and it sounds awesome pretty much every time, like almost without exception in my experience. I love that, the sound of that. You know, one of my guys was, you know, he, he said the same thing about a V72. It was like, you plug a microphone into it and it just, it just got this thing and the soul and this energy. That's something that's good for the engineer. That's something that's good for the client. That's something that is less time spent fumbling around with something else or trying to get some other choice or let's try this or let's try that. It's like, no, let's try this because it sounds awesome. And they go, you're right. It sounds awesome. Let's make some music. That's the difference. Yeah. The whole idea is to get to the music. Yeah. It's not a million choices. As quickly as possible. That's right. People trust us to make the right decisions right away. That's important to remember. It's not about coming in and being presented with a million choices. It's about coming in and look at all my equipment. No, it's no, not about that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's like we do this because we do this all the time day in and day out with this equipment and this is what we think sounds somebody great. said something to me uh it's not like if you buy any particular piece of gear people are gonna like 
talk about it like, oh, we got to go to that person and pay more because he has never this. Never, ever. Never, ever. But yeah, people come to, to individuals because of the work they've done. That's right. So, right. You don't go to your car mechanic because he's got awesome wrenches. Yeah, I have no you go to idea your, what my it doesn't matter, mechanic right? has, as long as he gets the job done. You trust that the mechanic is going to buy the wrench that's going to get the job done in the quickest amount of time. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know? Trust the engineer who's, you know, spent the time to do that. You focus on the music, you know? Let's let's all be part of this together and bring our expertise together, no matter what tools we use to get it done. Well, this has been awesome, John. Such I, a pleasure. I think it's time that we stop our interview and we go fill our coffee cups up and- uh, An Outstanding plan. And conclude. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. John Schimpf on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really great to see John and have him over for coffee over here at the house. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did, and as I usually do. But I guarantee you, if you're a studio owner, I bet you listen to this, and I think you might have some possibly new inspiration, maybe new ideas, or you might be thinking a little deeper about your own studio business. I hope so. I hope it was useful for you. So that's it. Let's head out. Uh, thanks, Cliff Truesdale, for that music, and Chuck Smith for that voiceover, and Cole Williams for your help on the, the social media end of things. And I want to thank, of course, our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Distro Kid, and Universal Audio. And, of course, hey, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.